Welcome to the Open Pew Podcast, your home for public theology made practical. We're interviewing faith leaders, public theologians, and so much more. And so if you want a theology show that talks about ministry as it relates to the real world, this might be the one for you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We are joined today by Shane Claiborne, uh, author, activist, and so much more. Uh, and today, <laughs> and today, I'm joined by my friends Annalise and Elizabeth. I'll allow them to kind of say hi. Yeah, um, I'm a brand new pastor uh, in the United Methodist Church, just starting out my first appointment, and graduated from the Boston University School of Theology this past May. And I'm Annalise, and I uh, work in youth ministry at a church in Alexandria, Virginia. Very cool. And as I said, we're joined by Shane Claiborne. Shane, could I ask how many how many books have you written? Oh, man, uh, that's a that's a tricky one. I don't know on that. Yeah, probably a do- dozen or so. I've uh, written I wrote my first book about uh, 12 years ago, The Irresistible Revolution. And then we did Jesus for President and uh, common prayer. And then I've done a bunch of collaborative projects. I like working with other people. So, um, you know, I did a book with one of my heroes and mentors, Dr. John Perkins, uh, called follow me to freedom. And I did a great project with, uh, uh, Ben Cohen from Ben and Jerry's ice cream, uh, called G- Jesus bombs and ice cream. <laughs> How imagining a world with less bombs and more ice cream. Uh, so that was fun. But my, la- my last couple of projects have been kind of uh, focused on different uh, uh, issues. One uh, was executing grace, which was around, in one sense, it's around the death penalty, but it's much bigger than that. You know, because as you peel away the layers of uh, the death penalty, you see a whole lot of other things. So it is, you know, it's got part theology, part history around race and lynching and kind of the evolution into the modern practice of death penalty and then the guns book and on both of those uh beating guns and executing grace uh one of the things that i found was that christians have been the obstacle to life uh rather than the uh champions of life and and that's part of the problem is we've kind of narrowed pro-life down to one issue of abortion and um, on some of these other issues like capital punishment and gun violence, we haven't um, been very pro-life on those. To kind of follow up with that, like so, so as I said, as I said, I, I labeled you as author, activist, and so much more. And it really seems like you do have you kind of you kind of are all over the place, uh, and I I mean that in a good way. <laughs> um, in the sense of whenever I whenever I see you on Facebook, whenever I hear about what you're doing, it always seems like you have you're you're spread out you're spread pretty thin is what it looks like at least from the outside looking in. Um, so what what are some of the projects that you do regularly, um, and what are some of the passion projects that maybe are at least right now you're more more into? I might say. Well, yeah, I sure don't. I don't feel at all spread thin. Um, I feel deeply rooted in my uh, community and neighborhood. I'm, I, I was I had the privilege of starting a, a little intentional community on the north side of Philly about 20 years ago. 
uh, called The Simple Way. So we just celebrated 20 years last year in the same neighborhood. So we've got pretty deep roots. You know, it's awesome. We've got community gardens and murals that we paint and after school programs that we've done over the years, food that we give out. We uh, are doing a lot of affordable housing these days, turning abandoned houses into homes. Uh, so all of that's my kind of heavy foot and my travel and writing and everything uh, really uh, comes out of that uh, sense of place. And even things like the death penalty, um, we've just seen too many kids killed on our corners. And on almost every corner of our neighborhood, we've got a memorial and a story of who died there. And um, there comes a point where, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King said so well, we're called to be the Good Samaritan and lift our neighbor out of the ditch. But after you lift so many people out of the ditch, you start to say, maybe we need to rethink the whole road to Jericho. Uh, so that fuels a lot of the movement work that um, I'm a part of. And um, I do some organizing myself, but a lot of collaborating uh, with folks like Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign, Repairs of the Breach, the, um, a lot of others working on immigration, like uh, the New Sanctuary Movement. So we're great collaborators. And um, but these these issues, they all intersect, you know, so this fusion justice or intersectional justice uh, uh, really uh, makes sense that you can't just care about one issue and ignore the others but these are very intertwined absolutely so one of the one of the projects that that I've seen you that I've seen you doing a lot recently is with and and I know you've been doing this for a while is the uh, the beating guns the uh, you you just put out a new book a few months ago um, you just did the tour which I saw you on and we Annalise and I actually a few weeks ago had the opportunity to speak with Michael Michael Martin and kind of get his take and so as kind of a follow-up to that I wanted to hear maybe what you what you would have to say on your end oh yeah it's been a great uh, I mean it's been really really powerful uh, to to do this work of turning guns into garden tools and Mike and I Mike Martin from uh, raw tools which if people didn't catch that it's war flip backwards raw uh, tools um, we caught this similar vision about six or seven years ago that's inspired by the prophets, the biblical prophets Micah and Isaiah, and they both foretell of a time where God's people will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks, you know, that will turn our instruments of death into tools of life. Uh, and, you know, we don't have a lot of swords, but we have a whole lot of guns in our country. So we, we started inviting people to donate guns. We have more, more guns than people uh, in the U.S. So we over the, the last, you know, six or seven years, we've seen hundreds of guns donated and we've made a whole lot of garden tools. But it's more than just symbolic, as you, you probably experienced in Ohio. You know, we we see uh, what we're doing is giving space to publicly grieve and lament the epidemic of gun violence. And we invite folks who have been directly impacted to take the hammer first. So, you know, for two days, it was just like two days ago that Reverend Sharon Risher, um, she is one of the folks who had her loved ones killed in the Emanuel AME shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. So her mother was killed, her two cousins and her and, and a dear friend. And as she took the hammer, 
she just pounded on that metal and uh, said their names. And uh, it, it's so moving. So part of what we really see uh, that we're doing is, is trying to um, move people in their hearts. Um, and, and our minds are important, too. You know, we, we have the hard work of some of the facts and statistics and things all through our Beating Guns book. But really, I don't know too many people that get argued into thinking differently about issues like gun violence. But I know plenty of people that have been moved in their hearts and their minds kind of um, follow their hearts. Um, so we tell a lot of stories and we we amplify the voices of folks that um, for them, gun violence is not just a, a matter of statistics and numbers, but um, are, are, is about flesh and blood and the people who they, that they've loved whose lives have been cut short by gun violence. I um, I want to chime in for just a second. Um, I really appreciated being able to watch that uh, video of, um, of Reverend Sharon. It was really powerful for me. Um, and the part of that was because um, uh, Reverend, Reverend Pinkney was a student mm. at Wesley Seminary while we were there. And he was mm. in the doctor of ministry program, which I worked for. Um, and so that, when that event happened, it was so incredibly tragic for so many communities of people, like folks who who didn't know any of those folks, but know the the historical trauma of having uh, your place of worship destroyed in a black community. Um, and, you know, that wasn't a target by accident. It was a target on purpose. And um, being able to watch her in that moment was incredibly moving uh for me as well as somebody who you know is only tangentially related to any of the folks um that died it was still it was such a symbol of hope um so i'm really thankful for that program and for the opportunity to watch her do that yeah thank you and you know there's there's a lot of folks that say well th this gun violence is not a gun problem it's a heart problem and what we really insist and invite people to think about is uh, why can't it be both you know a heart problem and a gun problem and God heals hearts but people change laws and reshape policies and legislation so that we're so that life can flourish and so that people um, can can live without fear and, and, and that's so, so we really see it as both of those. We could get rid of all guns and people would still find ways to kill each other. You know, in Boston, uh, as you all you know, know the, the, there was a pressure cooker that was turned into a bomb. And we've seen folks use a car as a weapon and, and drive it into crowds. So we will find ways to kill each other. But the fact is that guns are unique in that they are designed to kill, you know, pressure cookers and cars are not designed to kill, but, you know, AR-15s are designed to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, and that's exactly what they keep getting used for. So we're going, you know, should those be on the streets, uh, you know, any more than a grenade or, you know, other weapons of war should be on the streets of our country. Um, and, and one of the things that's great is a lot of gun owners believe in common sense change. You know, we can talk more about that, but I think that that's one of the things that we discovered that was really encouraging. And in a lot of these vigils, um, we have gun owners that come. And I remember one T-shirt that someone wore that said, uh, 
I'm a gun owner against gun violence. And then on the back it said, um, a good hunter doesn't need 10 rounds to shoot a, a deer. <laughs> we shouldn't, shouldn't have assault weapons on our streets. So this is, there's a, hopefully a better and more constructive conversation begin to happen uh, that isn't just uh, polarized by the political parties. Because this, this really isn't about right and left. It's about right and wrong, and it's about life. And I, I've noticed that since we've had our conversation with Michael Martin, um, your documentary that you put together, the Beating Guns documentary, is has been put has been made available on Amazon Prime Video. Yeah, our friend Rex Harson did an amazing job with the film, and I mean, even in that, there's conversations with gun owners and hunters. There's um, all kinds of incredible voices. Uh, uh, like Miss Lucia McBath, who's now a congresswoman, and uh, she's she's uh, her, the mother of Jordan Davis, who was killed in Florida, um, and other folks, you know, all over the country that have been impacted by gun violence. It's an incredible film, um, beating guns. So it's yeah, it, it's on uh, um, Amazon Prime and Vimeo and several other places. But we're, I'm, I'm really proud to have been a part of it. If you don't mind me chiming in here. Um... I am kind of interested in this idea of how we take this conversation into congregations, particularly congregations that may have people who are members of the NRA or who are gun owners and are the staunchly, like, don't take away my Second Amendment right no matter what sort of thing. Because I think I've noticed or have been more aware of that context as well. So how how would you say that we can carry this conversation in without demonizing those who are very, very much pro the Second Amendment, um, but also make them see that like this gun violence is a problem and just because it's not directly affecting our communities, it is affecting some communities, and that's something that we're all caught up in as well. We often have conversations in a vacuum or, or in silos, you know, where we're talking about issues, but we're not talking with the people who have been directly impacted. And so one of the things I think we can do is amplify the voices like, you know, Reverend Sharon Risher and uh, Moms Demand Action, so many that have personal stories, because um, the fact is that almost half of Americans know someone who's been shot. Um, and, and, and so let's not just talk about this from a distance, but let's talk about it together. Uh, the, the other thought that I would, would offer on this is that uh, it's important to talk about things like the Second Amendment. I think a lot of people, um, a part of what makes them passionate about this is the Constitution and the right to bear arms. But all of that has to be tempered, I think, with our primary allegiance, which is to Jesus. Um, and for those of us that are Christians, so as you talk about bringing this into the church, uh, the, 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 we can start with the Constitution. I think there's some really powerful conversations to be had there. For instance, when the Constitution was written or, or when the Second Amendment was written, uh, guns shot one round a minute. Now they shoot 100 rounds a minute, and yet our understanding of this has almost not changed at all. We still argue as if we still had, um, you know, uh, old black powder rifles, you know, or, or, or shotguns. And, and, you know, this is, this is something that as, as we think about it, even James Madison said that 
liberty can be uh, liberty can be hurt by the abuse of power, but liberty can also be harmed by the abuse of liberty. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> one person's unregulated right to bear arms can infringe on another person's right to live and to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So as we think about these things, that um, the, the question is kind of how do we hold this tension? Of, uh, of, of people's right to live and people, you know, does one person's right to own as many guns as they want? Like Mel Bernstein, in one of the stories we tell in Beating Guns, he owns over 4,000 guns, in, in, including, you know, rocket launchers and flamethrowers and militaries of uh, weapons of war. Like, does uh, the, the right to own those, like, at some point begin to um, really be destructive to the, the well-being of other people. So I think there's great conversation about that. But this is what I would say when, with our church conversation is that one of the most troubling things we found is that uh, Christians own guns at a higher rate than the general population. <laughs> and I'll just say that again, like especially white evangelical Christians are the highest gun owning demographic in America. And so th this is wild that like those of us that, uh, you know, are claiming to follow the Prince of Peace are also packing heat at a higher rate than than the general population. So I, I really think we have to see the gun crisis as not just a political crisis, but a spiritual and moral crisis in the church. Um, and, and, and the reason is, as you think of the cross and the gun, they give us two very different versions of power. One says, I am willing to kill. The other says I'm willing to die. And, um, and, and, and you know, and, and this is, I think, really um, beautifully captured in the story of Peter when he draws his sword. You know, here's Peter. He's heard the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, you know, live, real time. And then the soldiers come and he instinctively still picks up his weapon. Uh, in that case, a sword cuts one of the guy's ears off. And Jesus' response is stunning. He scolds Peter. He says, no, enough of that. You pick up the sword, you die by the sword. Put and then he heals the man that Peter wounded, um, puts the ear back on the guy. And the early Christians interpreted that. I mean, the, the point was crystal clear to them. They said, when Jesus disarmed Peter, he disarmed every one of us. Because if ever there was a case to use justified violence, or as the NRA would say, is to, to stand your ground, Peter had the case. But Jesus is showing us another way, right? Jesus is showing us a way that we can interact with violence without mirroring that violence, a way that we can live in a world where evil is real without um, becoming evil ourselves. So, so that... Um, idea uh, that, that greater love is no one than this. We can lay down our life for, for another person, but we, we cannot take a life that, that, you know, this was what the early Christians said for, for Christ, we can die, but we cannot kill. So I think we've got to raise these questions, especially around justified violence in the church. Um, and, and they're, they're theological questions. They're, they're re they run really deep, you know, um, um, but uh, as, as I think of the death penalty, gun violence, I mean, the wild thing is that in the United States, we so narrowly define what it looks like to be pro-life to the issue of abortion that you can be pro-death penalty, pro-guns, pro-military.
military and still claim to be pro-life. <laughs> you know, and so what what we're suggesting is that uh, to be for life um, is not just caring about life before birth, but it's about caring about life from the womb to the tomb and how we think about, you know, our, our life ethic should be consistent and it should frame how we think about the death penalty and gun violence and immigration and creation care and all of these issues, including abortion. And one of the things that's so amazing about the early church is how consistent their ethic of life was. They spoke against violence and if every iteration uh, in their society. So I have uh, a question. Sorry, Corey. I know that you've got a direction you're heading in, but like my my first thought upon hearing uh, what you've just said, Shane, is that there are certain like groups of people who have been told more often than others that they should be called to die, right? So like. Um, I'm a black woman and there, there's so much history involving telling people who look like me that we should absolutely be willing to lay down our life all the time, but other sections of society aren't being told that, right? And so I wonder what it looks like to speak to communities of color and say, you are called uh, as Christians to be willing to die knowing that that's a narrative that we have been told consistently that our lives are in a way that says that our lives are less important um, than others. So I'm just, I'm curious as to like, so how do you have that conversation in a way that both reflects this call of the gospel and speaks to how this has been used uh, specifically against communities of color? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really deep and powerful question. And the one thing that I would start with on this is that um, I do speak out of a you know particular social location as a white male. Um, and I, 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 we did a lot of listening to others as we were writing the book and reading, um, I think especially uh, uh from some of the writings of historic and contemporary figures who think deeply about guns uh, from other social locations as uh, African-Americans and other people of color. But I mean, one, so we have a whole section around do black guns matter? And uh, there's a whole section that says it's complicated. And certainly like historically the, the relationship between African-Americans and guns is really complicated. I mean, Ida B. B. Wells is, often called the celebrity endorsement of guns because she said every African-American family should have a Winchester in every home. Um, Martin Luther King uh, was a gun owner at one point. And then, you know, he came to a point where he said, I realized in this fight for justice and uh, we cannot use the same weapons as our oppressors. Um, so it is a really complicated thing that in, in some ways the gun was seen as an equalizer, that what our broken, racist, systemically racist court systems and government could not do, the gun could equalize that difference and give some sort of semblance of power. Now, the irony is, I mean, so as some of the guns were proliferating our country um, is the same time as like the Dred Scott case where 
uh, African Americans were ruled that they did not have rights that whites were obliged to respect. Um, so white folks love gun control when it came to controlling black folks and, and Native Americans and others from having guns. So when Black Panthers were walk, you know, going on the Capitol building in California, like there was all kinds of uh, concerns about gun control. And we literally, some of our first gun control laws were designed exactly for that. So we have a really, you know, riddled history with race in every form. But I think what we can begin with is by naming violence as the problem, not the solution. And our entire country is founded on violence, from the massacre of the natives to the subjugation and enslavement of, of Africans. Um, so guns played an absolutely critical role in that. Like that couldn't have happened without guns in the way that it did. Native Americans, one group of, I think it was the Blackfoot natives, they called guns spirit guns because they said they had to come from a malevolent deity. Uh, humans alone couldn't make something that evil. So that that's a part of our history and the role that guns have played. Now, I think, I think there's there's a complex, you know, <laughs> you know, dynamic there that I, I you know, uh, might have a different perspective on, uh, you know, from from where I'm, I'm, you know, writing and speaking from. But I, I say this as one who grew up with guns in Tennessee. And so I wrestled with this. My dad was in the military. I, I didn't grow up, you know, in a, a Mennonite or, you know, pacifist family or something like that. But I've arrived at my commitment to nonviolence, partly because of my commitment to Jesus. And also, I think, of uh, from seeing how violence and, and guns and the death penalty and the criminal justice system has so deeply dehumanized and hurt other communities, particularly communities of color. So um, when I think of even things like the movement for black lives, I think part of what is happening is we're naming what we have neglected in the past. And it's no surprise that folks say, well, can't we just say all lives matter? And to be specific about what what we've done in history and uh, in, in, in not saying that black lives matter, if you can't say black lives matter, then you can't, you know, then all lives don't matter. That makes a lot of sense. But I think it's a lot of white folks they hear, uh, you know, about this and they go, well, um, why, why can't we just say all lives matter? And you go, actually, I mean, like to say black lives matter doesn't mean white lives don't matter. You know, to say black is beautiful doesn't mean white people are ugly. Um, and in fact, when Jesus is saying in the in the, um, the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are the poor, the meek, I think he's actually naming and emphasizing what we've neglected. Uh, so if Jesus said blessed are the poor, I'm sure some folks would chime in these days and go, wait, Jesus, but God loves rich people, too. You know, all lives matter. So, but, so I think we have to be really specific about that, in particular with guns. Um, I mean, guns are the number one cause of death of African-American youth and children. Number one. It's number two for white youth and for all youth in America. Um, but particularly the communities uh, that have been hit with things like the death penalty and with gun violence, violence seems to always uh, have a gravity because of our history and because I think of white supremacy and privilege, it ends up disproportionately affecting communities of color. 
um, in communities like the one I live in in North Philadelphia. And that's part of where my passion on this comes from, seeing too many um, young kids die on our corners. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a, a beautifully nuanced uh, answer to a very difficult and nuanced question. So thank you for giving that. Absolutely. Time that you did. Yeah. Well, thank, um, thanks for your. And, you know, this is not this is not like abstract hypotheticals. I mean, we have Philando Castile, right, who like was a legal gun owning person who told the police, I, I have a gun and a, I have a legal you know permit for it. And he's killed, you know, so there, there's still this this reality that we live in. Exactly. Yeah. Also, fun fact, today is Ida B. Wells' birthday. You mentioned her. I just thought that was fun. Um, and also, uh, yes, I think that that is uh, a really important point. That's that is part of um, what has led a lot of folks in my own family to decide not to own guns or to stop owning them um, was seeing that. Uh, you know, this thing that was meant to help um, in some ways counteract the constant uh, fear of death that happens in my community that's just, you know, brought through generational trauma, um, that uh, something that was meant to combat that fear and to offer some feeling, some semblance of, of control, of comfort, of security, of safety um, became a reason to die, right? Because um, there are so many cases where someone said, oh, well, he was reaching for his cell phone. I thought it was a gun and I shot him. Right. And that's yes. people who didn't even have a gun on them. Right. And like and it's hard to imagine that, like, if someone actually did have one, well, then even it doesn't matter if it was legal to own or not. If you have it, that's a reason that is the reason that someone needs to supposedly justifiably kill you. Right. So there doesn't yeah. seem to be a use here. Right. It doesn't actually protect anyone. All it does is is help people die faster. So I agree. Um, but it, it is also it's such a difficult conversation to broach in communities of color who have been told so many times throughout our lives that we have to be the ones who are peaceful. And it doesn't matter what terrible violence is being inflicted on your community, the only response that you're allowed to give is one of grace and mercy and and absolute forgiveness from the moment that this tragedy happens. It doesn't matter what it is. It's immediately, you know, folks are looking for us to say, oh, it's okay. We forgive them. You know, we'll move on from this. And it's just constant. For And there's never space kind of given for people to respond with real anger and frustration and open um like hostility against people who have harmed us and so it's i think it's just a difficult uh step into those conversations in those places in communities that have always been told die <laughs> right yeah. like you are called to come and die we know that yeah. right like we are told every single day of our lives that we are called to come and die tell me something different Right. Give me a different perspective on why this is important for me. Um, and I thank you for your your nuanced conversation on that. Yeah. And ju just a couple more thoughts, because I really appreciate your your heart and your insight on that, too, um, is that I think there's one thing about being killed and the, there's something very different about being willing to suffer um, for someone else. And, and Dr. King talked about the complexity of this. Right. Like. Um, re there, there is redemptive suffering 
and there's stupid suffering. And so we should all work to stop the dehumanizing, degrading violence that happens to especially black and brown people. There is something I think about solidarity and being willing to join those who are hurting and um, and, and to expose violence as the civil rights movement did, as folks were, um, you know, Dr. King said, we will, we will wear you down by our love and our capacity to suffer will overturn your capacity to hurt and, and love will triumph over hatred, but we will not return your violence. We will not return your hatred. So there, there's power in that. It's a, it's a really difficult dynamic. And I think at the same time, we can go, there is stupid suffering. Like, it, I think Brennan Walker was his name, the 14-year-old in Michigan that missed his bus, went to a neighbor's house trying to get help, and it nearly cost him his life as that homeowner, a white man, you know, pulled a gun on this 14-year-old African-American kid. Like, that is sick, and there's something sick about um, our fear-driven racist culture that so quickly picks up a gun, you know, um, and, and even affects our criminal justice system as we see in so many cases of police uh, murders. Um, and we did an event with Tamir Rice's uh, uh, family. Um, and, and, you know, I think he was 12 years old when he was, uh, you know, had a, a toy gun and the police killed him in a matter of seconds. Um, so so th this is and, and everything. And I should just finally say on Ida B. Wells' birthday, I don't want to uh, just paint her as the celebrity endorsement of gun violence, gun, guns, Winchesters, but she was so much more. And I think I have so many great things I would say about Ida B. Wells other than her perspective on guns, which uh, I, I might be you know, a bit critical of. But I mean, even that came after she saw a double lynching. She saw so many black folks being lynched and and. and so, you know, this, this is a complex thing. But what we can probably all say together is that violence is the problem, not the solution. Violence is the, is the disease, not the cure. And that really helps us frame conversations around uh, the death penalty and, you know, gun violence, militarism, to say that, that, that violence is not going to solve our violence problem. Um, any more than, you know, more whiskey is going to solve our drinking problem. And I, I like what you said about redemptive suffering. Um, and I wonder if that's kind of choosing to kind of give up your power and suffer, if that's more of a call for like the white communities that do hold privilege within these conversations. Like every time we talk about like Tamar Rice or Philando Castile, I can't help but think about all of these white men who go in and shoot up movie theaters or schools and they can be taken alive and be told that like um, it's just a matter of like their mental health and that's a really big thing of power. So is this kind of redemptive suffering you're talking about something where white people really need to go down with the communities uplift voices and kind of give up their power within situations to say, hey, you know, like we get that we have the privilege and we don't want to use or abuse that. And we really want to uplift the voices of the communities that are suffering on a daily basis, stupidly suffering on a daily basis because of this racist structural structural system that we have set up. 
Yeah, and it's it's intrinsic. I think that the NR the, the National Rifle Association, the the gun extremists. There are gun owners and there are gun extremists. Um, and it's important to look at, I think, the extremists because the NRA really represents that. When they say we have five million gun owners, or when they say we have five million members, um, what they're also saying is that not over 95% of gun owners are not a part of the NRA. Um, so it's really important to say that there's a lot of gun owners that believe we need common sense gun laws. In fact, an overwhelming majority of them believe in things like background checks and, you know, not having assault weapons and all this kind of stuff, just sensible, you know, things. Um, uh, but the NRA is very unique. And, and I think when it comes to race, too, uh, it's, it's almost entirely white on its board. It's 90 percent white, 83 percent male. Um, and as of like a year ago, 76 members of the board, there are 76 members and all but seven are white. Um, and, and so there's a certain part of this that, um, as we, we really need to name, um, and we, you know, a lot of folks re reactionarily talk about, um, uh, black on black crime or something, but 84% of gun owners are white, 84%, you know, and you start to think about how we've been socialized to fear, especially as white folks, people of color, Muslims or whatever. But the, the latest studies show over and over that over 70 percent of the terrorist attacks and hate crimes are being done by white men. Uh, we are twice as likely to be killed by a white male extremist than a Muslim. Um, and, 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 uh, and you think of mass shooters, you think of, so, so it's very important to like name what's happening in our country. And also I think those extremists that are stockpiling weapons, um, and even we think of some of the greatest, the, the most horrific, uh, acts of domestic terror, uh, Timothy McVeigh and others like Dylan Roof and Charleston, these, these have been, um, homegrown terrorists, um, that have come out of, backgrounds of, of um, radicalism in, in those white communities. So, um, uh, yeah, that, you know, so that, that might be enough on all that. But the, it's, it's really important, I think, to um, uh, to name the issues of fear. And I think as Christians, we can claim that promise that love casteth out fear. So one of the questions that is worth asking is what would our country look like if love rather than fear we're driving our policies and our political discourse. If the question was um, around immigration, was what does love require of us right now? Like, how can we welcome people responsibly and well uh, into our country with loving arms rather than fearful fists? I know going back to the comment you made about uh, Christians being more likely to own guns and, and kind of continuing off of what you just said, um, I mean, I'm always reminded of Isaiah 28:15. You boast that we have entered into a covenant with death, with the realm of the dead. We've made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie of our refuge and a falsehood our hiding place. I always that that's just one of those things that I always think of whenever I think of the um, the reliance on both guns and the death penalty and all these. 
so so much of what we're dealing with today in all honesty yeah and we when, when we talk about guns when we talk about idolatry and we don't use that word lightly um I think idolatry is when we treat something with godlike power that is not God. We revere it. We we give it a, a power that is really only God's. And so you think about the promises a gun pledges: power, control, safety, protection, deliverance. You know, self determination, ridding the world of evil. Uh, and, and if a gun did all that, it actually would be like God. You know, but th- this is actually uh, a form of idolatry when we put our trust in things that are not God and we give them this transcendent kind of magical um, um, character. Um, and, and I think also it raises questions about um, our faith because gun Guns, I don't think, are just a political crisis. They're also a spiritual crisis and a theological one um, because you literally have bumper stickers that say Jesus would still be alive if he had had an AR-15. And, and so, you know, I think true worship is when we allow God to change us to be more like Jesus. And idolatry is actually when we try to change God and make Jesus more like us. So Jesus would, of course, be a white middle class Republican with an AR fifteen. Do you you don't mean to say you don't mean to say that we worship war as an idol, do you? <laughs> some may trust in chariots, hey, some sh- in horses, hey, some sh- in their glocks. <laughs> Shane, yeah. there are only two things. Shane, there are only two people who have died for you. <laughs> Jesus yes. Christ and the American soldier. Yes. And you know, and this isn't just me. Listen to this. This is mm-hmm. this is Warren Cassidy, former executive of the NRA. He said, you would get a better understanding of the NRA if you approached us as one of the great religions of the world. That's Warren Cassidy of the NRA. So they know, I think, that the power uh, 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 when they say that you should treat the NRA as a great religion. Um, and, and, you know, as you hear, you know, the, 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 the ideology of it, there's something deeply, deeply dark and spiritual, the principalities and powers that are at work um, with our reverence of guns and violence. And my gosh, you look at Jesus and you're like, what Jesus did on the cross, and this is where I think like the answer to bad theology is not no theology, but it's good theology. Um, So like what Jesus did on the cross was expose violence um, and make a spectacle of it to subvert it with love and with nonviolence, forgiving the people who are killing him. And and that's the one we worship, you know, as, as um, Alistair McIntosh said, he, uh, that Jesus absorbs all the violence of the world on the cross. Uh, so that should really change, I think, how we think about violence when we worship a victim of violence uh, every day. Well, let's let's use that as a segue then into into the more the, the the more practical aspects of like the day-to-day congregational parish life that uh, a lot of us and Elizabeth and I and a lot of the listeners that we have um, kind of deal with uh, someone a friend of mine described or a friend of mine would have me phrase it as uh, institutional inertia in that the institutional the institution of the local church is kind of pushing forward in the same way it always has 
to the point where when we when we do try to get uh, when we do try to quote get political in our sermons when we do try to emphasize that yes the gospel has a social political aspect we are so often told that no it doesn't faith should stay out of politics that type of thing um, when in reality what what it seems to mean is faith should stay out of politics when it's faith I don't or when it's politics I don't agree with yeah, uh, before you answer I mean, that question, yeah. can I interrupt and just say, for every youth pastor out there, we definitely have to face this question, too, I'm, because I'm... As, as a reminder, it is absolutely the generation of students that I am working with who have started massive movements about uh, gun control and gun violence and prevention, and uh, I am one of those folks that is tasked with how do we have this theological conversation about this in um, a space that is often one where people tell me you shouldn't be talking about that. You need to teach these kids the books of the Bible in order and leave politics out of it. So <laughs> it is all aspects of ministry that are yep. having to ask this question. That's yep. all I have to say. Continue. Yep. The one, the, no, Annalise, so good. Annalise, the one time I don't include you in the one time I don't include you in the list of things. Yeah, the yeah. one time it's relevant is the yeah. one time you don't include me. Yeah. Thank you. He, he tries to call me a pastor often. You are, you are I am not one. You are a pastor. Yeah, okay. I'm not ordained. <laughs> he tries to can to include me in uh, conversations that are really better for folks who are ordained. But for once, I, I actually do fit into this conversation. Thank you. Well, you know, we got to remember that this is exactly what they said about almost every social uh, issue throughout history. You know, Dr. King was told, you know, don't don't talk about uh, civil rights uh, from the pulpit. Uh, folks were told not to talk about the abolition of slavery. You know, I mean, this is just and yet um, I, I, we we are losing young people in part in the church because We've just used our faith as a ticket into heaven and an excuse to ignore the world that we live in. And, and we're, we're, you know, promising young people life after death. And they're asking, is there life before death? Like, doesn't our gospel uh, matter to the world that we live in right now? And I think it, it absolutely does. And this is part of the crisis in our church is that that Jesus wasn't talking about the kingdom of God just as uh, something we go up to when we die, but something we're to bring on earth while we live, that we're to, to participate in transforming this world from what it is into the kingdom of God, what it should be. Um, and, and that means caring about. And the funny thing is, like, Jesus is always talking about the stuff of his world. You know, unjust judges and, you know, widows and orphans and uh, day laborers and vineyard owners that uh, don't pay their workers fairly. And, uh, uh, you know, the, so you read the parables and they're the stuff of earth. And so I like how Karl Barth said we've got to read the Bible in one hand, but we need to hold the newspaper in the other. That, that our, our faith should cause us to engage the world and want to transform the world. And even the word polis. Um, which means city in Greek, a poetes is citizen, right? That, that the, the politics is about uh, how people relate together. So it is impossible to love our neighbor as ourselves and not concern ourselves with policies that affect uh, our neighbors. Um, and, and so I, we, we shouldn't be ashamed of these. Now, I think the important thing is that 
we should make sure that Jesus is the center and Jesus is our sounding board and litmus test for all this. So when it comes to immigration, we, we read Jesus saying, when you welcome the stranger, you welcome me. When you don't welcome the stranger, you don't welcome me. When it comes to violence, we see Jesus saying, love our enemies. And it raises a question of, can we love our enemies and simultaneously prepare to kill them? <laughs> you know, maybe Jesus meant we shouldn't kill them. So the, 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 we need to have these Christ-centered conversations. So to be political, I don't think is a bad thing at all. In fact, I think it's a necessary thing for Christians to be, but we're not partisan. And we're not apolitical. Like we, we believe that the kingdom of God is politically charged language. It's the reign of God, the governance of God coming down. And the question is, how do we create policies that uh, are designed to allow people to flourish and to live well together? And guns, um, the death penalty, all of these um, have everything to do with our theology as well. Um, so. Uh, when it comes to the death penalty, I think the death penalty raises one of the most fundamental questions of our faith, which is, is anybody beyond redemption? And actually, the Methodist Church has one of the best statements on capital punishment, um, it, it, where the Methodist Church has uh, essentially said that capital punishment undermines the possibilities of theological issues, uh, and they're also political issues, Um and I think we can do it in really healthy ways. I'm encouraged because I see young people, they care about this stuff. They can disagree well. They can hash it out, you know. But as long as we keep saying after every mass shooting, well, all that we can do is pray, we're going to lose them. Because we can pray and we should, but that's not all we can do. We, we can organize. We can change policies. We can boycott companies that are uh, that, that are uh, profiting from guns and violence. We, so there's all kinds of things we can do. And um, so we, we've got to get beyond this idea that we just all that we can do is offer thoughts and prayers. Uh, one of my mentors said we can pray and we must. You know, the scripture says good things come to those who wait upon the Lord. And my mentor said, but good things also come to those who get off their butts and organize and make stuff happen. Pray with their <laughs> so feet. Yeah. I, I, I believe in both. I believe in prayer and uh, I believe in action. I really like that answer. And um, I also think that in some cases in churches, it's really, really hard to like get people to see beyond the politicized kind of like dual thinking of like you're either Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative. Um, and I think there's something to be said about starting conversations within like the local institution. Um, one of my favorite quotes about keeping like Jesus at the center of your story is from um, Rachel Held Evans Inspired, where she talks about we have all of these differences, but like we're all caught up in the same gospel story. Um, so I appreciate the idea of like starting with Christ at the center of everything and then working from there. And I think that is a really good starting point for when you're working with congregations who may not be ready to get up and like go out and march or change the system or may not even see, think the system needs to be changed. Yeah, it's good. And one of the things that we do is we tend to, all of us are viewing the world through a, a particular social location. And I think to humbly um, recognize that is, is very helpful. And just a, a, a creative way that I've seen someone um, kind of uh, shift that dynamic is my friend Michael McRae 
who does amazing work around storytelling. Um, he has people share their stories with each other, but then they retell the story of the other person in first person to see if they listen to it and if they can maybe empathize with it. So he, he told me this one story of a very passionate gun owner who is partnered with a woman who lost their child uh, to gun violence. And they just share their own stories and how they arrived at where they're at. And then they switch places and they tell each other's story. And as this passionate, uh, you know, Second Amendment gun enthusiast begins to tell the story in first person of the woman he just heard losing her child. He just began to crack and weep. And there's that empathy. I think we've got to find creative ways to see through uh, each other's eyes a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's true on almost every issue, especially race right now in our country. Like it's why you ask if you ask white folks, do we have systemic racism in our policing system, overwhelmingly they say no. It has people of color and they go, heck yeah, we do, you know, because we're seeing through the world through different lenses and social locations. So I think one of the things that we can do around guns and the death penalty is maybe like start to just um, find some common ground on these, you know. Um, uh, so, so for on guns, for instance, like why would anyone need a silencer on a gun? Why, why would you need a silencer? Should we have guns that that can shoot a hundred rounds a minute? Uh, they, these are really good questions, and I'm I'm actually fi finding a lot of common ground with, with gun owners. One of our best partners has been, you know, gun owners against gun violence, where where you go, well, if someone is on a no-fly list uh, because they they've they're on a watch list. Like, shouldn't they be on a no gun list too? You know, like, like those are, those are good questions. Shouldn't stolen guns have to be reported? You know, and maybe we can find some, uh, some common ground. One of the laws that I've thought makes sense is called one handgun a month. So it would only allow one person to have 12 handguns in one year. So no one's talking about getting rid of the second amendment. You're just going, maybe there's limitations. Um, and if you're buying more than one handgun a month, you might not be doing good things with that, you know. <laughs> and yet those laws are overturned because of the kind of power of that small group of gun extremists uh, within the NRA. So I, I, I'm encouraged. I think there's also technology. You know, we haven't even talked about suicide, but suicide is two thirds of guns, uh, gun violence is suicides. Um, it's the leading cause of death of military service members. Military, more military folks die from suicide than combat. Um, and, 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 you know, many of our, our loved ones are dying because of suicide. And guns are so central to that because they're so effective. Almost everybody that tries to kill themselves with a gun dies. But what's interesting is almost every other method of suicide attempt, not 90% of people survive their first suicide attempt, and they don't go on to die from suicide. They are able to get help or rethink their, their situation. Sometimes it was an impulsive thing. Um, so if we want to protect life, I'm just convinced that we can do better than 105 lives a day that are lost to guns. We're not going to save every life, but we can certainly do better than 105 lives a day. Every one of those is a child of God. Well, Shane, we said we would hold you for about an hour, and so I wanted to say thank you again for coming on. This is just kind of like to toot my own horn for a second, that this this kind of marks like a really 
cool moment for me in this uh, podcasting adventure. In that one year ago today, I got to uh, interview Walter Brueggemann, who was like, you know, one of my big hopes for someone I could get on the podcast. And it just so happened that today we ended up uh, scheduling you. And so thank you for that. Absolutely, man. And I'll, I'll just say that Walter Brueggemann, who's he's a dear friend, uh, and he's also been a huge champion of our movement to beat swords, uh, to beat guns and the garden tools. And his book, The Prophetic Imagination, uh, you know, has, has been instrumental for us. But one of the things that he says is that we, we often misunderstand the prophets. We think that they were they were fortune tellers but they were actually truth tellers, right? They weren't just trying to predict the future, but they were trying to change the present so that we could build a different future together. And that, that vision, you know, of Micah and Isaiah beating swords into plows is that kind of prophetic imagination to say uh, we can transform metal from what it was into life and we can also you know transform this world so it's a hopeful vision it's a beautiful vision and it's a, a gift to be on your show uh, on that anniversary walter brueggemann's a beautiful voice in the world and so annalise elizabeth you have any last things to say before we sign off just uh, thank you again for your time and um, for being willing to share so many uh, wonderful thoughts with us today yeah, thank Absolutely. you. This was a fantastic conversation, and I appreciated hearing the thoughts. Absolutely. It's great to be a part of it. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to the Open Pew podcast. If you enjoyed the Open Pew, you should check out our network, DisruptiveDisciples.com. That's DisruptiveDisciples.com. Want to get involved? Well, you can drop us a line on Anchor. Leave us a voicemail and you might be included in a future show. We would love hearing from you.